a podcast about Poland from Indiana University's Polish Studies Center. I'm Elizabeth Cullen Dunn, your host. My guests today are Łukasz Stanek, who is a senior lecturer at the University of Manchester School of Architecture, and Christina Schwenkel, who's a professor of anthropology at the University of California, Riverside. We're going to talk today about architectural mobilities, that is, about moving architects and planners who left Eastern Europe, including Poland, to travel the world, bringing ideologies about the proper conduct of daily life, about what cities should be like and about how economies should function. Both Professor Schwenkel and Professor Stanek are authors of new books. Christina Schwenkel's new book is called Building Socialism, The Afterlife of East German Architecture in Urban Vietnam. And Wukash Stanek's new book is Architecture in Global Socialism, Eastern Europe, West Africa, and the Middle East in the Cold War. And Wukash Stanek will also be our wiles lecturer this year. So we will hear more of, from him soon. Thank you too for joining me. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Maybe one of you could start out by telling me a little bit about who went where. Uh, where were architects traveling from and to? It's almost more difficult to say well, where were Eastern, architect, Eastern European architects not going to. Uh, it is... Uh, Sometimes one can one can find traces of these uh, architectural mobilities from um, state socialist countries, really in the most unexpected locations. And so, um, perhaps the really important thing, at least for my book, to to stress was that uh, perhaps uh, in contrast to to uh, quite widespread preconceptions, they were not simply traveling to. Uh, countries which were Soviet allies or satellites. And so, uh, of course, the architects and planners, but also construction materials and blueprints and technologies and details and images were moving from Eastern Europe to uh, Southern Comic-Con members, such as Mongolia, for instance, or Vietnam or uh, Cuba, uh, or uh, countries which aspired to be Comic-Con members in Africa, but that is not at all the whole story. So in fact, uh, when I was thinking about my case studies and uh, places which I would like to write about, I very consciously have chosen places which precisely were not uh, Soviet allies. I was really interested in those uh, places which were nodes of uh, many more architectural networks and uh, this included, uh, in my case, Ghana, which was a socialist country, but not a Soviet satellite, and uh, Iraq, which pursued its own very specific uh, type of socialism under the Ba'ath Party, but also countries which were not at all socialist countries, such as Nigeria or uh, countries in the Gulf. Christina, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you stumbled onto this project, because I know you worked in, in many ways in reverse. That is that most of your work has been in Vietnam yes. and you stumbled across the East German connection um, kind of fortuitously. Maybe you can tell us about that. Sure. So my first book was very much about the embeddedness of post-war memory in urban landscapes. So I'm really interested in the kind of the ways in which Vietnam, after the end of the American War, was able to rebuild, rebuild community, rebuild culture. And in that process of my dissertation fieldwork, I came upon a site that people love to hate. And that was a um, socialist housing project that was of the largest of its scale in Vietnam that people um, called Soviet built. So I spent a lot of time at this project and as, as it emerged, it was actually built, um, you know, designed and then built collaboratively with local labor um, because it's really important also to distinguish between the, the kinds of labor that went into these projects um, in collaboration between uh, Vietnamese planners and builders and East Germans. 
And I had, you know, spent some time in East Germany after the fall of the war, paying attention to the ways in which the, the built environment in, in Eastern Berlin has transmitted, you know, contested memories over time. So I was actually able, I was actually able to bring these two projects um, together to then study these kinds of circulations that were, what were very much about kind of utopian ideas of rebuilding um, after post-war annihilation, after uh, urban annihilation in Vietnam. You know, one of the things I think is really interesting about these stories is for so long, we thought of Eastern Europe as being contained behind the Iron Curtain. And what you're telling here is a story about the circulation of people and things um, from Eastern Europe that predates what we thought of as the opening of Eastern Europe in the 1990s. Um, I know there's been a lot of work about Soviet architecture and city planning and the idea that um, certain kinds of socialist ideology were embedded in the built environment, that the buildings that they made conveyed something about their ideological priorities. I wonder if either of you could tell me some of the ideological reasons that, um, that these projects came into being. Sure, well, I can give an example before I let um, Lukas speak. Um, first of all, you had mentioned the idea of um, closed, right? The idea that you had this iron curtain and, and what happened, there were these kinds of closed um, economies and closed societies. I think one of the, the contributions that the, both the books really make is kind of thinking about globalism or thinking about socialism in a more transnational way. So really kind of challenging the nation state model. Um, and to do so, you really have to see that the ways in which these circulations were taking place more broadly. And I think it's also important to remember that they were multi-directional. So they were not just from you know, the socialist north going to what today we call the globalist south, but they were actually moving uh, you know, across also south-south connections right, that are really exciting also to look at and have fundamentally transformed, for example, Vietnam's landscapes. But there are ways in which these ideas were also then circulating back to back to social, the socialist industrialized North. Um, and they weren't only about architectural mobilities, right? They are mobilities of people, they are mobilities of labor and technologies and goods, um, resources, etc. cetera. So um, that's the first thing I would say that and the way in which that kind of really plays right, upon, because um, there are places like Vietnam, it's very easy to say that after the war, Vietnam shut down, there was an embargo and that there was this country that was in stasis. Um, and it's and so then we overlook this like incredibly productive era of urbanization. And there actually are scholars who have argued that there was no urbanization post-war until capitalism, right? And then you have this kind of like remaking of the um, environment and this kind of commoditization of, of architecture. Right. Um, yes, I, th th this question about, uh, if you like, what is socialist about in, in these uh, stories is, is one which I have been thinking about. And that's a question I, I get uh, quite often. And so I have a kind of twofold answer uh, to this uh, question, given that uh, I work on a number of very, very different places, right? Uh, as, mm -hmm. I, as I mentioned before. And so uh, in a natural, uh, there were places such as Ghana uh, uh, where uh, these movements of various resources really uh, were, was implemented, or these resources were implemented in uh, the... Um, socialist development path or the socialist uh, development model, which was pursued by the uh, administration of Kwame Nkrumah. And that uh, can, you know, be seen very clearly in some of the architectural examples that I, that I discuss, for instance, for instance, um, housing projects, which were based on large scale prefabricated buildings, pretty much, uh, you know, similar to the ones which were uh, built at the time in the Soviet Union. And that of course, that the construction, both of the factory for these, pro these prefabricated elements and all the infrastructure around it would mean a fundamental shift in the building economy of the country. And uh, the socialist uh, development model, but also the socialist uh, way of life could be also seen in specific programs. For example, in what way apartments were differentiated or not. And according to, which criteria or what were the problems or programs rather which let's say supported women's professional work and so this these type of programs were, can be very very well seen in in uh, the Soviet designs which which I look at in 
uh, Accra and elsewhere. But there's also this other aspect of socialism, which uh, precisely comes to the fore in countries which were not at all socialist countries, and uh, where elites were quite often hostile towards socialism, such as Nigeria or the Gulf. And there I argue that um, the socialist aspect of these architectures uh, is more, mostly conveyed by the political economy of architectural labor, uh, which uh, was really defined by a number of uh, features, uh, starting with the internal organization of this labor in socialist country, on the socialist countries in question, but also, and uh, perhaps most importantly, in the political economy of foreign trade of state socialism, including you know very specific actors such as foreign trade organizations, which I look quite quite closely. That would be Pol Service in Poland, Limex in East Germany, for example. Uh, and uh, such features as uh, the inconvertibility of Eastern European currencies, the privileging of the principle of Balto, uh, and so on and so on. So these are the two aspects which uh, interact sometimes in, in surprising ways. I think one thing that comes out, um, and I, I love pairing the, the books together, um, is the ways in which we can think about, and you know, I had to grapple with this in the field as well, that there really was no uniform or unified principle of socialism that were what was guiding these projects, right? And this is really important, especially um, in the Vietnamese context, because there are very diverse logics and ideas about socialism and about urban futurity, right? And that's where some of this incompatibility then came into play. So just to give like one on the ground example of the kinds of housing complex that was designed and then built by East Germany, again, with in collaboration, so with co-production with local planners, and also with a lot of research, right? To think about Vietnamese culture, you know, thinking about tropical ur urbanism, studying of ecology, of the environment, et cetera, was the ways in which though these kinds of um, ideas were just incompatible with local dwelling practices. So one um, example um, that I tend to give to that I think that people can understand is the ways in which that the housing very much promoted a family as a, a social organization model around the nuclear family, right? And in Vietnam, first and foremost, is an extended family model. And also at that time, you, know, you had very competing models. You had a collectivist model that had been very much structured and influenced um, by Chinese social organization workplace models, the Domway, that were then coming into conflict with these ideas of individual housing for nuclear families. And this reflects back to one of the kinds of key um, interview quotes that I have in the book, which was, we were not just building a city, we were trying to produce a new way of life. I think this question about building a socialist way of life or a new way of life is really critical. And I want to circle back to that in just a second. But one of the things I, I was thinking about myself, I've been reading uh, and teaching Nick Cullither's book, The Hungry World, which is about American agricultural development in non-aligned countries during the Cold War. And Cullither argues that um, these attempts to push forward the green revolution, to export agricultural technology and feed people, were part of a battle for the hearts and minds of the non-aligned world. That is, as the, as the superpowers were trying to divvy up the world into blocks, that the non-aligned countries um, saw a kind of leverage there that mm -hmm. they could use to try and extract resources. And, um, and there was a, a kind of pitch for, for, in a way, a geopolitics of affinity, right? That geopolitically, the idea was to make the recipients of these technologies grateful so that they would align with one side or the other. Do you see this in architecture in the same way that we might see it in, say, agricultural technology? I think this is really important. And uh, this is uh, for, for my narrative, particularly important in mm -hmm. countries which precisely were not sort of pursuing the socialist development model in, how, in, in whatever form. And so uh, one of the, you know, biggest challenges which I was struggling with when writing my chapter about Nigeria and Lagos in the 1970s was precisely to, you know, understand better, you know, what you call these, these um, geopolitics, multiple ones of affinity. And uh, Nigeria not being a socialist country and, uh, uh, and uh, architects from Poland, Hungary, Yugoslavia, Romania, who found themselves in uh, in Nigeria, they, they really 
not simply they needed not simply to legitimize their presence, uh, but they also needed to figure out you know how to solve the problems on the ground. And in so doing, they drew on much longer Central European and Eastern European traditions and architectural culture. And I argue in that chapter uh, uh, that there were kind of three main areas to look at. And one of them was precisely the question of the countryside, which um, since the late 19th century was seen as a kind of crucial area of obligation for uh, modernization uh, by by, uh, architects and, and planners. Uh, and uh, it is precisely uh, in the countryside, which some of, of the protagonists of my chapter directly compared to uh, uh, the countryside in a, in a developing country. So, for example, Charles Poloni, who, is a Hungar- who was a Hungarian architect, uh, whose work I studied uh, quite closely in uh, Nigeria, he worked before in the Hungarian countryside and made kind of direct connections uh, between these, these uh, locations. So what you're saying is that these architects and planners believed there was a developmental trajectory that all the countries would follow sooner or later. And so what happened to the Hungarian peasant or the Polish peasant as they industrialized would happen sooner or later to the Nigerian peasant, to the Vietnamese peasant. I'm not sure if that was, uh, you know, if everybody was would be following such a kind of linear narrative, uh, because I also, uh, there, are, there are very few kind of manifestos who I could, I could you know, look at uh, in order to capture the narrative. The narrative was much more, you know, the way I reconstruct this, this narrative is much more that of, you know, specific planning tools and instruments, such as, you know, very specific type of technologies of planning, very specific type of kind of mobilizing resources on the country, countryside. And so uh, I... Uh, uh, but but I think in principle uh, uh, you you are right that what they uh, thought of is that you know they are not kind of agents of socialism uh, uh, but they thought many of them at least Polony certainly didn't think about himself as somebody who was you know implementing socialism in Nigeria but he thought that he thought about himself that his previous experience precisely of the modernization of the countryside was in very specific points directly. Uh, useful for uh, Nigeria. Christina, did you see the same thing with East German architects that they thought that there was at least some overlap between processes of destruction and redevelopment in Germany? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and this is where, this is one of the really interesting intersections, I think, between the the books, because um, in your introduction, because you talk about this idea of the shared experiences of foreign foreign domination, that was very much about the kinds of narratives that the East German architects themselves had, and actually the narratives that the Vietnamese authorities that I worked with and interviewed had as well, right, that the experiences in, in East Germany with destruction and with exploitation at the hands of imperialism, right, is a very problematic assumption, of course, in Eastern Germany to be emphasizing shared experiences of imperialism, right, which I try to problematize in the book because there's a certain kinds of historical amnesia, i.e. the Holocaust, right, that is kind of then written out of that narrative. So the idea of these shared experiences were very much a part of the idea that motivated then these kinds of collective sentiments and then this idea of a shared future. And that was very mobile for the Vietnamese planners, the architects, the officials, but importantly, the builders as well, right? Because then they had this vision of this kind of shared future. They also had this vision of the ways in which they were also able to to then participate in this larger kind of global project of building collectively global socialism. Now, I think that's that's really interesting. And one of the things which did strike me when I was reading your your book, Christina, is precisely this this claim to victimhood, which... uh, uh, is uh, I think in many ways problematic, but so are so were uh, these claims that I describe in my book about, mm-hmm. for example, for example the, the 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 idea of many Polish architects that they uh, themselves were colonized, mm-hmm. or that Poland as a country was a colonized territory, and hence uh, there is yet another affinity they could they could build upon again specifically when architectural technologies 
were concerns, for, for example, that of nation building. And, uh, but what I think was quite interesting uh, when, when, uh, uh, for, for them and for me was that uh, after uh, they traveled to, to places like Nigeria or Ghana, they started quite often to kind of think back about Eastern Europe in different ways and not necessarily simply in, 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 that, in that victimhood uh, trajectory, but also they began to um, realize the uh, you know, uh, kind of more ambiguous relationship to the history of colonization in a country like Poland, for example, uh, in relationship to its Eastern territories. And that is true about, about architects, but that is perhaps most kind of evidently true in the work of people like Ryszard Kapuściński, who, uh, so a, a, a journalist who basically discovered uh, that the area where he grew up in interwar Poland, namely Polesia, was really a colonized uh, territory, but it was colonized by metropolitan Poland. Yeah, interesting. This, these questions of decolonization really echo some of the discussions we hear today where the object is to apply a post-colonial framework to Eastern Europe, which obviously had a very different experience. You, it's, it's difficult to apply the model of colonialism derived from Britain's interactions with India to discuss Poland's interactions with Podlesia, its own internal territories. And yet, or the Soviet Union's uh, mm -hmm. and Imperial Russia's relationship to the Caucasus and Central Asia, which you talk about, Wukash, as a model for, for a lot of this activity. But it's, it's really interesting to me that this question of decoloniality came up rather than the idea of sort of shared, a shared building of socialism, the common project that these architects engaged with, with their local counterparts was decolonization. Yeah, I, I don't think that, that I had thought that way about East European socialist projects before. I always thought of it as an export of socialism rather than an export mm -hmm. of decoloniality, which is really interesting. I think um, that's, that's true in the sense that, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, uh, uh, this idea of a, of a decolonial, of a, of a um, decolonizing power was, you know, explicitly there in uh, Soviet discourse. And uh, for example, you know, literally in, in uh, newspaper articles that were planted uh, by the Soviets in Ghana and other places. And so the discourse literally went, uh, the Soviet Union is a decolonizing power that liberated the, uh, Central Asia from uh, Tsarist colonialism. And of course that was questioned immediately from all sides. It was questioned from uh, from Central Asia. It was questioned in the Cold War context uh, in places like Ghana, but it was also questioned by Central Europeans who had a very different experience quite often of the Soviet Union. In particular, this very early group that I described, you know, who, who, who went abroad in the 1950s, 1960s, and that was a group with a very particular social uh, origin, right? I mean, who who speaks uh, a foreign language in, 19, in early 1950s Poland, right? And so quite often people who traveled abroad from Poland were people who, not, who did not support the socialist project at all. And they had very different ideas about, you know, uh, that, that discourse on uh, the, 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 the presumably Soviet decolonizing uh, efforts. One of the interesting things you say is, Wukash, is that the non-aligned countries like Ghana or Iraq didn't see a unified Soviet bloc. They didn't look at East Germans and Poles as part of um, a, a socialist bloc, but really saw a lot of differences between the countries in their ambitions, in their technologies, in their skills. And they were trying to leverage those differences to work out the best deal for themselves. Can you tell us a little more about how the, um, the receiving countries sort of tried to play the East European countries off one another? Yeah, yes, I, I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because uh, this was really one of the kind of key ambitions of the book to, 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 to look at Eastern Europe from the South uh, and to really 
challenge or simply move away from this cold war narrative of a one homogenous Soviet bloc, which is an entirely, to my mind, an entirely you know, Western construct uh, originated from the Cold War and you know, very much still, still there, you know, even in supposedly progressive uh, newspapers like The Guardian in Britain. Uh, and uh, uh, these countries, uh, like Ghana, like Nigeria, like any other country I, I described in my book, were very much aware of the differences, of the, let's say, technological differences, right, with, the che with Czechoslovakia and East Germany being the most advanced, uh, technologically, uh, technologically advanced countries in in. Uh, uh, in in Eastern Europe, uh, while Romania and Bulgaria uh, being not the most advanced, but for instance, being able to offer very specific expertise in say agriculture. And so uh, on the one hand, there is this question of specific expertise and, and uh, hence the division of labor uh, within Comic-Con countries, uh, which uh, uh, these countries tried to um, organize and, and, and coordinate quite often uh, not successfully. So what was a vision of a kind of coordinated division of labor ended up uh, really in competition between various agents of uh, Eastern European countries in Ghana, in Nigeria and elsewhere. And that competition was very much used by um, uh, the decision makers many of whom were very, very well educated and uh, were very able to compare across these uh, various uh, offers and, and uh, traditions. So uh, can I add on to that? Because that's a really interesting, um, those are really interesting points and they intersect a lot then with the Vietnamese case um, because these you know, architectural transfers were also kind of tool for decolonization in Vietnam on Vietnamese on their own terms, right? And that was very, very important in terms of the kinds of documents, in terms of the interviews. And it came down in terms of the ways in which, and, and because I know you talk about this as well, um, that this was not a kind of recolonization, right? It was really important for actually all sides to discuss um, the power arrangements, right? It had the actual say. So it didn't, re it didn't really, uh, there were a number of you know, um, plans that were presented, they were be being presented to the Vietnamese, they would make the final decisions about what plans that they wanted, what plans that they didn't, they rejected a number of plans. Of course, plans were changed at all levels. Um, there were, you know, arguments about scale, for example, that was one of the main kind of problems that emerged. However, what I want to get to is these ideas, this idea of the exploiting of the various strengths of the different countries was also very much about how Vietnam planned its own reconstruction and modernization, right? Tapping into, and again, this goes back to the idea that we have to kind of think about even South-South connections, right? So tapping into Cuban strengths, um, focusing on the kind of engineering of bridges, focusing on their agricultural expertise. Um, and then you had people, you had countries being pigeonholed. China, for example, was um, responsible for then rebuilding, because this is not just about urban planning, right? This is about infrastructure, right? And not just urban infrastructure, but also rural infrastructure and the building of industry and training, right? So it's, it's you know, this kind of, you know, triangulation of design, build, and train that's happening here. So you also, at the same time, have China being responsible, for example, for the energy sector. And as I, you know, argue in the book, and then North Korea being, uh, you know, responsible for certain reconstructions of certain states. And it was also about, you know, Hanoi being very careful geopolitically about where these projects were located. So for example, the Chinese projects were the first that were in mostly ethnic minority areas far enough from Hanoi that they would not be able then to exert any kind of political influence on Hanoi that was then going to be presumably this was an unfinished project rebuilt by the, um, the Soviet Union. So it was very strategic in terms of not only tapping into the various kinds of technological expertise and the resources that these countries presumably had and the various kinds of um, or arrangements they had with these countries, they're each different, but also in terms of the geopolitical relationships that they had People's with these countries. Lives. Both of you talk about the ways that these projects, particularly residential ones, became also projects of world making, of 
trying to build a whole new lifestyle for people and in ways that express certain kinds of values. So Christina, I wonder if you could start us off talking about the apartment complex where you worked in VIN and how it was meant to change people's lives. What's it like to live in the apartment complex? Well, that's where the fieldwork took place, right? So I moved into one of the buildings because it was clear to me that if I wanted to kind of really understand how different this had been to the collective lifestyle to, that people had been living during the war and after the war, right? We have to remember that, again, this is a moment, you know, where you had urban annihilation and you had, this was modernist architecture under emergency conditions, right? I mean, that's also something we have to remember with the specific case that, that I examine in the book. Um, so if you were to walk in there, you know, today to the buildings that are remaining, about half of them have since been demolished, um, particularly the last couple of months, you would probably um, have flashbacks to some of the other, you know, kind of residential complex that you have visited in terms of the way in which that they are very much designed. But then, of course, there are unique differences, um, you know, given the kinds of changes that were made to the design, sometimes at the last minute. And then, as I argue in the book, most of the changes actually took place by the inhabitants after they moved in and looked at the spaces they had been given. They had problems with the, the ways in which, for example, um, the, the East Germans had tried to construct specific rooms with specific functions that did not translate over again into kinds of more local dwelling practices, creating a so-called living room where yes, in Vietnamese um, houses, typically in vernacular architecture, there tends to be a guest room, right? But you don't include things like bathrooms and kitchens inside homes. Um, Eastern planners were very excited that they were able to offer um, sanitation inside the home that didn't trans well, translate over actually quite well with many people. There were certain groups um, who moved in, who had been trained in Eastern Europe, Europe and knew that that was a part to be modern was to have an inside toilet and to have an inside bathroom and a kitchen. Um, but that idea, I mean, those were have been typically part of the division between inside and outside. So those polluting areas were always kept outside the house. And once they were put inside the house, then it raised huge issues about how do you then rearrange space all these walls and doors they had built that were also not typical of vernacular architecture suddenly raised the issue of the movement of airflow through the apartments that on the one hand was seen as positive, it kept them cool, provided light, but on the other hand were seen as winds that produce illness, right? Um, on the other hand, that people had very uh, had difficulties in recreating the main guest room that is also um, in the room that's supposed to be in honor of the ancestors. The ways in which the doors and the um, walls had been constructed, them did not allow for people to kind of, you know, perform their various ritual activities with regards to veneration of, of ancestors. So there are a lot of incompatibilities there that then with time, the Vietnamese residents went through and changed that. They knocked down walls, as I argue, they rearranged doorways, they made it according to their own feng shui practices that they felt that East German architects had not been successful to create inside the house. It is important to realize, though, that they saw the opposite, that actually the outside and the design of the complex, they felt that they had been trained in feng shui principles and that very much aligned with how they thought that the larger space of the complex should have been designed. The problem lay with the interior design and the division of space and the creation of walls and doorways. I think this is just fascinating because the building was in, in so many important ways meant to shape the human beings. And Absolutely. then instead of conforming to this idea of what it means to be modern, um, the people who occupy the building, particularly rural people, push back and shape the building to suit themselves. And this, this reminds me so much of when I first went to Georgia. And it was during the period of infrastructural collapse. There was no functioning power grid. And what you could see is that they had moved the village into the city. So people were raising pigs in the basement and they were raising chickens uh, in the courtyard and they had... Um, use the balconies as, you know, cold storage for ham. And yeah. they had reproduced their rural lives in many Absolutely. ways inside these buildings. And if the building didn't fit that, that rural life, they changed the building. Absolutely. Yes. We'll yeah, a whole rethinking of space and so, social organization and the use of space and, and, and commoning 
right? Which continues to this day, right? And that's, you know, what was fascinating. So this idea that you would have this private space that, that the East German planners thought that people would relish. Finally, we're moving out of collective housing. We're going to have our own space, our own bathroom. Actually, people blurred those boundaries as is typical in, in Vietnam. And it wasn't that East German planners didn't know this. They, they had gone there and they had done intensive studies about how people live. They had done all these drawings. They had interviewed people. But it was what it came down to, again, like I said, it was modernist architecture under emergency conditions, but very very few resources. And in the end, they had to opt to towards producing shelter for people in the quickest way possible. Well, gosh, I know there have been some really great studies of Ghanaian toilets. I'm thinking of Brenda Chalvin's work on, <laughs> yes, on yes. toilets as, as common spaces, as kind of centers of social life in Ghana, these public toilets where people are doing their laundry and they're washing their hair and they're chit-chatting and their kids are running around. And, um, did you also see uh, this process where where the buildings were meant to change people, but instead the build the people changed the building? Um, yes, absolutely. I think that is that is uh, in a way a common story for for so many of these of these uh, places. Uh, uh, but but I think it it also somehow relates to one of the kind of key arguments that that I tried to make in the book that. Uh, most of the protagonists that I describe were really what I want to call the weak actors, in the sense that uh, they were more and more uh, aware, becoming more aware of their own limitations. And so this is really, uh, in many ways, a kind of different story to the kind of usual story of modernist architects who sometimes imagine that they would come and, you know, reshape the world. Uh, you know, they were coming and then they re were realizing that there were so many uh, so many uh, that the reality on the ground is so so complex, both in terms of the, the daily practices, but also you know the, deci the decision making process, which which they sometimes did not expect, and that had um, you know a lot of the, a, a lot of consequences. For instance, you know I'm describing how uh, Ghanaian architects, including uh, you know the architect Dick Adegbite. Uh, negotiated and rejected uh, Soviet uh, plans. Uh, but uh, I'm also looking at uh, ways how um, uh, the architects began to design processes rather than you know, objects, in particular in rural areas where they were very, very aware that uh, the resources are so limited. And so uh, for me as an architectural historian, uh, these are relocations where uh, uh, some of the basic tenets of uh, modernism are being questioned, uh, challenged, and really rejected. So one of the things I uh, looked at or I thought about when I was reading both books was that the Soviet mikrorayon, these, these blocky or panelaki, or I forget, what are they called in, in German? The concrete panel apartment buildings? Oh, Plattenbau. Plattenbau. Um, we're supposed to be in many ways a universal technology, the kind of McDonald's of the Soviet world that in terms of a form which could be picked up and transplanted anywhere without change. And it sounds like that those universal forms didn't exist, that in fact, um, the architects themselves had to confront the fact that these uh, plans and styles of living were not universal and had to be adapted for context. Was that true in terms of the technical demands too, that the architects realized that they couldn't rely on the technologies they knew from Eastern Europe and had to adapt to their local conditions? What, what changed in building materials, for example? So the idea, and this is for me a fascinating um, question about the construction material technologies. Um, and I have a little bit in the book, but it's something that I'm working on in a, as a larger project. Um, because you have this idea of the, the Plattenbau that was presumably brought to Vietnam, um, connected to these projects to rebuild Bing City, but as well as other projects in Hanoi that they were involved in, right? Um, and so East Germany was involved in producing this large panel construction um, factory in the 1970s. But Vietnam actually had panel technology already. And I think that's really important for us to think about the kinds of long trajectories of these architectural and planning and construction mobilities, right? And that they're, they're 
you know, circulating through different nodal points. They're being translated, they're being modified, and then they continue to travel. So actually the very first kinds of um, prefabricated technologies that arrived in Vietnam were from North Korea. And North Korea was involved in constructing the very first micro rayon in, in um, Hanoi. Now, of course, then you, one has to ask the question, well, where did those kinds of construction technologies in North Korea come from, right? The GDR was also involved in reconstruction Hamhung, right? A major industrial town in, um, in uh, North Korea and also brought along this idea of these construction technologies as well and producing there a panel, a panel plant as well. So as a um, concrete uh, panel plant. And of course, the GDR idea of the Platinbau was influenced by the Soviet Union, right? So you have, again, these multiple circulations. Soviet Union is also involved in projects in, in North Korea. Korea. This transfers over to Vietnam. The Vietnamese have their own kind of way in which they're re rethinking and rejecting panel technology. And then at the very same time, not seeing it as relevant or intersecting or compatible with, again, vernacular architecture and local dwelling practices, and also the ways in which that the technology was just not available at that time. Um, and also, of course, this meant a lot of training had to be done. So there were dozens then of um, engineers had to be sent over to East Germany to then train to how to manage these factories. There was one factory that was built in Ving, the site of the research. So the one in, in Hanoi took about, you know, you know, you also had the bombing was ongoing at these times. So they would start these projects and have to stop them. So the one in um, Vietnam was built in, or, or, sorry, Hanoi was built, and that was followed by an even larger factory by the Soviet Union. So there was this kind of also this competition, right? Whose technology, whose panel technology was going to be used and adapted and applied to rebuilding um, Hanoi. That plant in Ving where I worked was never built and was not successful. So, and part of that had to do with the lack of infrastructure there, the lack of expertise there, right? And also the general rejection of that panel technology. Yeah, that's that's a topic which I really spent quite a lot, uh, spent a lot, quite a lot of time thinking about this, and it entered the book in in many ways. Uh, just maybe in in really picking up what on what uh, Christina said, it's quite interesting that in most of the locations I work on, uh, really the large scale prefab uh, was also uh, somehow known before the Soviets came. And so in Ghana, that was a Dutch system, which was a complete failure, which was implemented uh, or tried to be implemented. They tried to implement it uh, under the auspices of the UN. And, uh, and so the Soviet system was very much kind of fought through that Dutch experience. And in Iraq, for instance, they had experience with the very famous French Camus system. And some, when the Poles tried to, you know, propose their own prefab system, they, uh, the Iraqis, you know, were, were very, very hesitant. And instead, they opted for a small-scale prefabrication system. In terms of the Soviet uh, factory, which was built in Accra, and, and it was uh, really, uh, really became one of the places which, which, which really shaped the uh, Ghanaian uh, concrete um, industry. And I looked, uh, based on Ghanaian archives and Moscow archives, I looked at the whole process of developing the system. And so, uh, again, un, un, uh, in contrast to this commonplace that somehow the Soviets were incredibly unflexible and they were you know, dropping all these factories uh, everywhere. Uh, that was not at all the case. There, there was a there was a lot of work which tried to adapt the system both to uh, the uh, living conditions and the living habits of 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 the of the intended users, but also and perhaps you know more directly and more 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 clearly to uh, climatic conditions such as glare, such as in particular uh, uh, rain. Which, which of course is a huge, uh, huge uh, problem in a, in a tropical climate. And uh, there you also see how, uh, you know, what kind of problems down the line it caused, because I was studying how uh, the Soviets started to adding, started adding uh, water insulation, water protection to their prefab systems. But while they started adding this, their slabs began to be began to be too heavy. And then the cranes officially intended to then didn't work anymore. So you see, this is what a system means that these things are connected. And uh, so, so, so this is why the, why the process was so, so, so complex, but also, uh, and that's the last thing I want to say about this, that uh, there was, uh, that to implement the system was uh, uh, precisely uh, 
uh, intended to uh, shape uh, the construction industry and beyond in a large, large, you know, much bigger scale. In other words, uh, the Soviets tried to, and the, the Inganians counterparts tried to think about these changes to the construction industry as a really much more fundamental uh, change uh, on the on the scale, on a, on a much much larger scale, and that is an approach which, for example, was contrasted with the approach of a number of other socialist countries, including China in the 1960s. I think we can't leave any discussion of architecture without talking a little bit about aesthetics. And one of the striking things, if you look at the pictures in both of your books, which have, by the way, fabulous photographs in them, um, is that these exported buildings all share a similar aesthetic. Uh, many of them are brutalist. There's a whole lot of concrete. And, and that aesthetic, that kind of, I don't know, I call it sometimes uh, socialist Gothic, like the Palace of Culture in Warsaw, or, or just straight up brutalism, that aesthetic was controversial even in Eastern Europe. Um, we had Michal Morowski join us uh, earlier uh, this year, and, and he talked about the vastly divided opinions in Poland over the Palace of Culture. Some people think it's beautiful. Many people <laughs> think it's very ugly. And I know the same was true of a very well-known brutalist apartment complex I lived in in Rzeszów, uh, which makes the, um, the global slideshows of, of brutalist architecture all the time. But many people in Rzeszów thought they were hideous. So here you have this, these forms of architecture, which clearly have very little to do with Ghanaian architecture or Vietnamese architecture. What were people's reactions to this kind of stripped down concrete approach or this aesthetic? Yeah, I mean, this was really, again, something I, I struggled with. Uh, and that's of course also a question of sources, isn't it? It's not just a question of, uh, of um, uh, concepts, but it's also on how can we reconstruct uh, uh, the ways in which people in Ghana, in Accra, looked at these buildings and, you know, what they what did they see when they looked at them? And so uh, uh, in order to, uh, you know, for example, in Ghana, there is no architectural criticism or, and, and those very few articles which were written about uh, were of course uh, written by British educated architects. And so they were almost, and they were, they were also very, very reluctant to write about these new buildings, which were not designed by them. And so that, that was almost, you know, that was not the way for me to, to, to pursue. And so one way for me to, to answer this question is really to look at newspapers at uh, daily newspapers in uh, Ghana, which uh, actually quite closely followed these buildings. Of course, on the one hand, as part of a sort of state socialist propaganda, but I don't think that that was it. I think there was a, a real fascination and with these new buildings and a kind of real uh, amazement about what, what, you know, how they, what they mean. Uh, in in the city, and um, and that is confirmed also, you know, in other types of sources, in novels, in in uh, uh, radio uh, shows, in in films, and it is on the basis of of uh, uh, these sources, uh, crucially, for instance, also photographs. The Ghanaian newspapers had a very very good photographic services, and they. Uh, you know, they documented the buildings uh, sometimes uh, uh, in, in very striking images. And so I was looking at these images and then the words, and I was trying to think of, trying to understand, you know, how these buildings were seen, how, for instance, um, uh, sometimes, you know, in just very, very small ways and in very few sentences, how somebody describes a very smooth road and is kind of amazed about the smoothness of the road and the straightness of the road. And then this person just says that this road for the first time allowed me to see the countryside, you know, because you don't have to look at the road all the time. You actually are able finally to look around and, you know, the road, the smooth road, the straight road allow him to discover Ghana or places, uh, 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 you know, how, or, or, or sort of everyday practices, how the introduction of a new store uh, allowed 
to uh, kind of stabilize the spaces and times of the new of the new society because as you know it was explained at length now the uh, government officials didn't have to uh, leave their work to shop during during office hours but actually they can you know shop afterwards and so these new architectures were really kind of seen as reorganizing in a sometimes a really fundamental way the spaces and times of uh, this, this, this society that kind of re- began to recognize themselves and really recognize itself in some of these buildings. Christina, did the residents of the apartment complex in Ving find it beautiful or ugly? Or did they have a, a more complex perspective? Yeah, well, they talk more in terms of, of harmony, harmony, harmony or disharmony. So there was a way in which that they saw that the building, and this is was so relative to to um, the space, but also the time. So, for example, so yes, there was from the from the point of view of the East German architects that I worked with and looking at the plans, there was this way in which they were encouraged to include aesthetic elements to the buildings. Um, and of course, you know, when people look at the buildings, I'll assume that they're uniform. And that was kind of fun for me to doing the project and getting to know all of the 19 buildings at that time. You know, each block has its own unique history. Each block has its own design. Each block has its own kinds of um, allocation, construction technologies, and it's small aesthetic differences. So they did what they could with the resources that they had to tweak each building to make them more beautiful. From the perspective of the the residents, and this, you know, as the book lays out, the, the residents were quite diverse, right? From the rural female migrants to to the cadres who had more of this kind of you know global sensibility and wanted to embrace modernity to show that they were global citizens, um, to you know the rural migrants who were very much attached to wanting to have more elements of vernacular architecture brought into the buildings. So they talked in terms of did they fit? Did this fit? Are not fit with the environment. Um, and so, you know, most people said, no, these didn't fit. Although at the same time, they were spectacularized, right? And there were fountains that were built. Um, there were other elements to, you know, the, the parks that were built, the playgrounds that were built. So as a living space, people found the space beautiful, harmonious, um, and good to live in. But again, it goes back to the apartments again, that they found that the apartments did not fit with their lifestyles. Now, what's interesting about this idea of, of harmony um, is that over time, the buildings that were five stories, at the time, the buildings were seen to be like too tall. So now that they're building 20 stories next to them, if you look at the kinds of ways in which these buildings are just dwarfed, I mean, they're so small compared to the larger buildings. And so now it's the larger high rises, right, that are being built by Vietnamese firms that people say, oh, no, those don't fit. Those do not fit with the environment. What fits with the environment are our East German buildings. It is amazing that the that the apartment complexes were so disconnected from their environment. At one point, I was surprised they didn't have their own weather, like some of these tall mountain <laughs> peaks. They're just so they're so encapsulating. You know, they're they're their own planet in some way. Yeah. Which is just fascinating. Anyway, yeah. thank yeah. you both so much for helping us think about these um, these global socialist spaces and the role of East Europeans in exporting them. My guests today were Wukash Stanek and Christina Schwenkel. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you.